0: Well, let me uh, also uh, add uh, my welcome to that of uh, Andrew Reese's earlier in the service and to wish you all a very happy new year. And as Andrew has said, we begin a new series looking at the book of Haggai. I'd encourage you to grab hold of a Bible in front of you, uh, if it is in front of you, and to turn to page 948. I guess page numbers are going to be important for us when it comes to the book of Haggai. Uh, Tucked away as it is, just a little book. Uh, but it's page 948 uh, for us to find that little book. I was uh, very excited on Thursday this week. Uh, We brought Joshua a Rocket Eagle aeroplane for Christmas, and on Thursday we went to the park to fly it for the very first time. Uh, Joshua was excited, but I think I was even more excited. You see, I'd read the instructions, the instructions that told me that the Rocket Eagle could be launched up to 30 feet into the air and would fly a considerable distance, depending on whether it caught thermals or not. Does that sound exciting or what? The instruction told me it was certainly not to be flown in any garden, for a backyard would not be big enough for its flight path. I was excited Joshua had the first turn, he had to, it was his present after all, uh, but at, uh, at age five and a half, he couldn't quite get enough propulsion on the launch, and so it was over to me. First time, up it went, not especially high, but it flew down beautifully. And so second time, I decided to give it some real welly, to get it 30 feet into the air, to catch some thermals, whatever they are. Up it went, and crash it went into a tree that is it that's what's left of it and so Joshua's christmas present lasted one outing two flights and less than a week doesn't look particularly spectacular now does it after all that uh, and here it is all broken and in bits i promised him i'll try and fix it it costs less than a fiver so it doesn't really matter uh, i did buy him something else for christmas as well i'm not a complete stooge it only costs a five and yet there is something sad about something in tatters uh, in ruins isn't there our car is in bad shape at the moment um, the automatic gear shift bust and so I can't get it into park uh, the exhaust is about to blow and someone decided to run into the side of the car while it was parked in a car park and then drove off without telling us um, how different our car looks to three years ago when I drove it out of the garage it wasn't brand new but it was fairly new all shiny and new there's something sad about things that are in bad shape, isn't there? Now if that's how we feel about aeroplanes and motor cars, or at least how I feel, how much more should we feel about the most expensive thing on the planet? Do you know what that is? It is God's church. The church, the people of God, why is it the most costly thing on the planet? Because it costs the Lord Jesus Christ his life to create his church and so it is desperate to see the church in tatters in Britain. See, no matter how you look at it, the church in Britain is not as it should be. Numbers are declining faster than Joshua's Eagle aeroplane. And quite apart from numerical decline, some parts of the church are riddled with doctrinal error and racked with dubious morality. There are pockets of hope, Uh, there are signs of life here and there, but generally the church in the United Kingdom is in ruins. And that is what makes the book of Haggai so relevant for us today. You see, it was the 29th of August, 520 BC, when the Lord spoke through Haggai. That's how we calculate the date. Uh, Haggai's calendar said, verse 1, it was the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month. On that day, you'll see in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Haggai and commanded him to go straight to the top. Verse 1, Haggai was to address Zerubbabel, the prime minister, and Joshua well the Archbishop of Canterbury I suppose is the closest in our thinking and his message it's there in verse 2 this is what the Lord Almighty says these people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built and there in verse 2 we see what this little book is all about it's all about the rebuilding of the temple the Lord's house the place where God dwelt among his people Today, God's temple is not a building in Jerusalem. It's not a construction of bricks and mortar at all. Today, the temple is the church, God's people. Not a building, the people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, wrote Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul also wrote later on in 1 Corinthians in chapter 14, that as we meet together and proclaim the word of God, unbelievers in our gathering should declare, surely God is among them. When the church is as it should be, proclaiming the gospel faithfully, unbelievers will recognise the presence of the living God with us. But how rarely that happens in churches in the United Kingdom today. How often do you find unbelievers walking into churches and say, wow, God was there. Today the temple of the Holy Spirit is in need of some serious renovation, in Britain at least just as it was in Haggai's day. Uh, That was the Lord's assessment back then. He says it twice in this chapter, at the end of verse 4 and halfway through verse 9. The same expression, my house remains a ruin. And you see, that's what makes verse 2 so shocking. The people were saying the time has not yet come to build the temple. (laughs) Here is God's house in tatters and God's people were doing nothing about it. Ziddly squat, nothing And they are actually making excuses. Oh, the time's not come yet. It is remarkably contemporary, isn't it? Christians today don't seem to be too bothered about the state of the church in Britain. But it really is a sorry tale. Attend most churches and there are more seats empty than full. The impression that most of my unbelieving friends have of the church is that it is a gathering of a handful of old people on a Sunday morning in a big cold building, And their impression is not so very far from the truth if you look at most churches. The average church attendance in this diocese is, do you know, 62 people per week. 62 in most churches. If you have a church of over 100 in this diocese, you are part of a large church. I don't know what the average age of church attenders is, but I would guess it is above 40 or 50. Or 60? The church is not in good shape. But are we bothered by it? Christian, when was the last time you prayed for the evangelization of the nation? How often do you pray for the renewal of the church in this land? Have you ever prayed for revival in Britain? For the church in this land needs to be restored and replenished and revitalised, doesn't it? We are so much like the people of God in Haggai's day. The temple was in ruins, but God's people weren't especially bothered by it. They said, verse 2, The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. What an outrageous statement that was. It was only a few years earlier that God's people were in exile. They were away from the Promised Land, away from Jerusalem, away from the temple and in captivity, first to the Babylonians and latterly to the Persians. But keep your uh, notice sheet or your service sheet in Haggai and come back with me to uh, the book of Ezra, uh, page 473. Because uh, the book of Ezra gives us the historical background to the book of Haggai. It's always useful when you're reading um, Old Testament prophets to find the, uh, the other Old Testament book that gives you the historical background. It fills in an awful lot of, uh, 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 of understanding. Page 473, uh, the book of Ezra. Here's the the background to the book of Haggai. Uh, Let me read the first three verses of Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfil the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah... The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout the realm and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus, king of Persia, says. Now bear in mind, King Cyrus is not, um, not a believer. He's not, he's not part of Israel, I- I- necessarily. This is amazing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among, among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, do you see it there in Ezra chapter 1? It is very clear. The very reason the Lord released God's people from exile was that they may go back to Jerusalem to do what? To build the temple of the Lord. That was the reason that the Lord had moved in the heart of King Cyrus to release people to go back to build the temple. Now they knew that very well. When they first arrived back in Jerusalem, they did start this rebuilding project. And at first they made some progress. You can read all about it in the book of Ezra. Let me encourage you before next week to read through the book of Ezra, if you will, at least through the first four chapters. When you reach chapter four, you'll see why they stopped rebuilding the the temple. It's because they encountered opposition. They did have real aggression from pagans around them. There's no doubt about it as you read it. The the, the, the believers who'd gone back to Jerusalem, who were rebuilding the temple, did get a hard time. And to their credit, they did fight on for a while, but the opposition became too much for them. And so now as we flip back to Haggai, by the time we're in Haggai's day, the people had stopped building because they were weary of the opposition. And now all they had to say, Haggai chapter 1 verse 2, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. You see what a terrible statement that was? That was the very reason they'd gone back to Jerusalem. Now notice the New Testament parallel. There's no need to turn to it, but in Peter's first letter, he describes Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor as living stones being built into a spiritual house. We are the temple. And then he says these words, these famous words in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why are you all those things? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are being built into a temple to declare the praises of God. It's exactly the same, isn't it? Like the believers in Haggai's day, we've been brought into God's kingdom for a reason. We too have the specific task of building the temple, building up the church, not bricks and mortar, the people of God, to the glory of God. And as we do that, we will meet opposition. And we will be tempted to stop doing that work. But being about the task of building up the church numerically and spiritually is what we are about. That's why we're here. Yet believers today attempted to say, Haggai chapter 1 verse 2, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Of course it has. That is exactly why we're Christians. But I hear individuals saying this very thing. I'll speak out for Christ once I've reached the top of my profession. Why do you think you are where you are in your profession? Not so you can reach the top, but so you can speak about Jesus now. I hear people say, oh, you don't understand the politics or the ethics of my work situation. I can't tell people about Jesus Christ. I'll be struck off. I'd lose my job. Why are you in your job? Your job is to build up because all of our job is to build up the temple, the people of God. The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built, we say. Whole groups say it. A leader of a student Christian union said to a friend of mine, God hasn't told us to do evangelism yet. Well, clearly those Christians haven't been reading their Bible. The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built, is what they're saying. And you sometimes hear whole congregations say it. Oh, we're concentrating on unity. We need to sort out our church building before we do evangelism. We'll do evangelism when the music's better, when we've got the home group program in place, when the churches in britain is in ruins and christians all over the nations are all over the nation are saying the time has not yet come for the lord's house to be built do you see it is a terrible thing to say because we have been brought out of exile for the very task of building god's church it is a terrible thing to say because while the church is in such a sorry state it dishonors the name of our god and it's a terrible thing to say because, let's be honest, it is just an excuse. And actually the Lord sees right through it, of course. He knows the real issue. Look at verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Or verse 4 is a devastating comment. See, here is the real reason why they weren't rebuilding the temple. They were too busy feathering their own nests. The Lord says it again at the end of verse 9. He says, my house remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Now, don't misunderstand. They're not being rebuked for simply putting a roof over their heads. That's not it. No, verse 4, they were living in panelled houses. That is, luxury houses. Picture the scene. The temple, God's house, is in ruins. While God's people were sorting out their loft conversions, building their conservatories, spending Sunday afternoons at B&Q, and furnishing their homes with their widescreen, digital high-definition TVs, with built-in free-view package. It's outrageous. They were so busy with their own homes, living in the lap of luxury, living in their panelled houses, they had no time to build the house of the Lord which was in ruins. You see, at the heart of the problem in Haggai is the issue of priorities. And it is uncomfortably contemporary. God's people without God's priorities. Too many of us are more bothered with our own house, our own comfort, our own career, our own recreation, our own self, than to be about the work of building God's temple. Haggai forces us to ask, where are our priorities? Haggai forces us to ask, what are we doing with our resources, with our time and our money? See, it asks us, are our wallets and our diaries driven by the longing to build up God's church? In November, the the church warden sent a letter to everyone in the congregation asking them to review their giving. A number have made a great, a terrific response. Some have made huge sacrifices. Some will have reviewed their giving and simply cannot give any more. Well done for reviewing it. However, as far as we can tell, and I should say here, I don't know any of the people who've done this or not. I never see the names. This is just what's passed on to me by those who do see the names. As far as we can tell, it seems that 200 families who attend Christchurch Forward regularly are not giving to the church in any planned and tax-effective way at all. The book of Haggai forces us to ask, are we leaving significant spiritual work undone because we are spending money on feathering our own nests, on our own homes, our foreign holidays, and on making our future secure? Now look, if it slipped your mind uh, in the busyness of Christmas, uh, then I urge you to review your giving now. That's understandable. it has been busy the last month. Or if you're being challenged now through the prophet Haggai about your priorities, then let me urge you to do something about it. Pick up a giving leaflet and review your giving before we go too far into the new year. The exciting thing here is that there are so many things that we could do. There are so many opportunities for the gospel and we could do them all if we had more money. Where are our priorities? And you see, it's not only about finance, it's not only about our wallet, it's also about our time, it's about our diary. How are we using our time? What fills up these days? There are people here who selflessly give their time to building up the church, getting to know unbelievers, teaching new Christians, discipling established Christians, but there are others who give very little. Haggai prompts us to take a look at our diaries. Are they driven by a desire to see the church built up? You see, it's what our 1 plus 1 equals 2,000 initiative is all about. It's about building up the church. A crucial part of what we've been saying in the lead up to this year is about us making time for unbelievers. See, when I say look at your diary, I'm not saying I want you to spend all your time down here. Far from it. It's about getting to know people who we have contact with, sharing life with them so that we can share the gospel with them. Where's our priority? The Lord says, take a long, hard look at yourselves, verse 5. This is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. The Lord says, you see, it's time for honest reflection, verse 7. Give careful thought to your ways. He says, ask some hard questions. He, he actually said that to the people of Haggai's day because he wanted them to look at verse 6. You see the way verse 5 and verse 7 works? Verse 5, give careful thought to your ways. Verse 7, give careful thought to your ways. What is the careful thought he wants them to give? Well, look at what's happening in verse 6. He says, you planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Give careful thought to way. Why is it as it is? See, the economic circumstances were desperate in Haggai's day. They knew all about recession, didn't they? The agriculture minister was getting a hard time from the opposition for the state of farming in the nation, verse 6. You've planted much but have harvested little. To be fair, you couldn't actually blame the farming policies. I know the opposition always does that, but you couldn't. It was down to the weather. There'd been no rain, you see. It says that in verse 10. They were in the middle of a drought. It says that in verse 11. It'd be quite nice, wouldn't it, to be in the middle of a drought? No, well, it wouldn't, actually, but uh, we've had a lot of rain here. But they didn't know anything about that. and all of that actually made the economy really shaky gone were the boom years recession had set in verse 6 you eat but you never have enough they'd forgotten what it was like to have seconds to have that lovely feeling of being bloated at the end of a meal and in these hard times there was no chance of drowning their sorrows verse 6 you drink but never have your fill can you hear the leader of the opposition calling for an end to a boom and bust policy I can life was pretty miserable for this lot Uh, end of verse 6 you put on clothes but are not warm like poverty stricken pensioners they had to wrap themselves in blankets in the winter months because they couldn't afford to put the heating on their money just didn't seem to go far these days you see verse 6 you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in the exchange rate was hopeless in short it was just difficult to make ends meet no doubt granny reminded them of the good old days I can remember when you could buy a loaf of bread, two pound of lard, a pot of jam, a punnet of strawberries, and still have change out of a shekel to buy some sweet for the kids. You can just hear her saying it. Granny, of course, was exaggerating, but she was right about one thing. It didn't go far these days. Times were hard. Now, what is the significance of all this? Why on earth does he say, think about these things? Look carefully at verse 10 and verse 11, and you'll begin to see. Verse 10, 10... Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. Verse 11, the Lord says, I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labour of your hands. Verse 10, it was the people's sinfulness That had resulted, verse 11, in the Lord's action against them that had brought about such hard times. In order to really understand it, we need to have one more cross-reference. Stay with me. Again, keep your finger or something in Haggai and come back with me to Deuteronomy 28 and you'll really begin to understand what's going on here. It's page 205 for us to get a good background to what is going on in these verses. Page 205. Deuteronomy chapter 28. I think this is one of the most important chapters to understand in the Old Testament whenever you're reading um, Old Testament prophets because so often they're relating back to this passage. Deuteronomy 28 is about blessings and, uh, for obedience and curses for disobedience. It's a, a chapter of blessings and curses. And it's where the Lord promises, if you obey me, you will have great blessing. And if you disobey me, great curses will come upon you. And in this situation where these people had disobeyed by not building the temple. Well, listen to what the Lord says in Deuteronomy 28 verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed, and the crops of your land, notice, and the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. Very specifically, look on to verse 38. You will sow much seed in the field but will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. You see, there is the explanation for the situation in Haggai's day. Flip back with me for the last time to Haggai then, page 948. Here is why the Lord told them to think carefully about what was happening in verses 5 and 7. Because if they thought about it and thought about Deuteronomy 28, they'd have realised that their agricultural woes were the result of their disobedience. The Lord had brought this upon them. Now look, it seems to me the same will happen to us in the church not the same things exactly but the same lack of blessing if we are disobedient we will experience hard times so give careful thought to your ways verse 5 in this land we have struggling little churches a handful of people meeting in a place built for hundreds give careful thought to your ways why is that like that? has it got anything to do with us being disobedient? turning from God's word, being involved in all sorts of things that the word of God says we shouldn't be involved in. Could that be it? In this land, few seem to know the wonderful blessing of a real and vibrant relationship with God. I meet people time and again who are disillusioned with the Christian life. They can tell me when they became a Christian, but they're actually just going through the motions now. Give careful thought to your ways. Why is that? Because you're not being obedient somewhere. See, so many people know what it is that is described in verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. So many people I meet with, that could be their verse. It's true of many Christians in this land. We know the Lord is powerful and mighty and able and willing to bless. We know the gospel is glorious and liberating. We know God's word is powerful and life-transforming, but we don't seem to experience it. We expect much, verse 9, but time and again it turns out to be little. Why? Give careful thought to your ways. I think of one Christian years ago who told me of how exciting he'd found the Christian life while he was at university. And then he said to me, it's not like that anymore. In his words, now I just go through the motions in the Christian life. He still read his Bible, he still prayed, he still came along to church. As we talked more, he told me about his university days. His face lit up. He talked about regularly knocking on door to door, delivering leaflets, speaking to his rugby friends about Jesus. He told me how scary it was, but you could see he was really excited to think back to those days. That was so ordinary for him. And I said to him, why do you think it was exciting back then and not now? I suppose I said, give careful thought to your ways. You see, when we stop being about the Lord's work, when we stop having his priorities, we know little of his blessing. It is the Lord who brings drought when we, his people, have other priorities. Verse 11, I called for a drought and we're experiencing that spiritual drought in Britain, aren't we? A drought numerically, a drought of the proclamation of God's word where people have to travel miles to hear the Bible taught, a drought of people becoming followers of Jesus Christ, a drought of knowing the Lord's blessing, of of experiencing his presence, of the assurance that he is with, with us. We're in a drought. Why, verse 9? Because my house remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. It's a challenge, isn't it? And what's the answer? Verse 8. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. Start building the temple, says the Lord. Get your priorities right. But we can't afford to build the temple, the economic situation as it is. and The Lord says you can't afford not to. You won't prosper until you do start putting me first. The Lord seems so distant. Why do you think that is? It's because you're not about the building of the temple. As soon as you are, he will feel very close. So how about it as we head into 2009? Are we committed to getting stuck into our Our initiative, 1 plus 1 equals 2,000. See, the Lord will bless us as we make his priorities our priorities. Uh, To encourage us as we close. Uh, Look what happened when God's people adopted God's priorities. I love the end of chapter 1. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I'm with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. See the transformation. They obeyed the word of the Lord. They began to fear the Lord, and they knew the presence of the Lord. I am with you. And notice how, verse 12, Zerubbabel, Joshua and the whole remnant obeyed the voice of the Lord. Mighty things happen when there is a corporate response. On the 1st of July, 1857, in New York, Jeremiah Lamphia started a weekly lunchtime prayer meeting with a handful of other Christians. They committed to living wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ. Over the weeks, more and more began to attend the prayer meeting. On the first week of October, three months later, they started to meet every lunchtime. Within six months, 10,000 people gathered every day to pray for the salvation of men and women. Within two years, approximately one million people had professed Christ in New York, and it has been described as the greatest spiritual event in New York's history sounds exciting doesn't it do you want that for forward do you want that for Sheffield I mean, do you really want it begins with a corporate response verse 12 doesn't it the whole remnant a corporate response of obedience of all of us being about the work of the Lord we can begin this Friday at our half night of prayer Details are on the service sheet, on the notice sheet. Eight o'clock till twelve o'clock, four hours of prayer. Oh, you might not be able to commit to four hours. Come for one. Come for half an hour. You can come for half an hour and go. There'll be chances to come and go every hour or on the half hour. But will you come? We need to pray if we're going to do this uh, corporately, personal prayer, praying for our friends. The the monthly prayer meeting through this year, more and more to attend. See, this can only come from the Lord, that's why we need to be about prayer. It was the Lord verse fourteen who stirred up the leaders and the people to act. We need the Lord to stir us, to move our hearts, to change us. I can't do it. I, I can shout louder. Won't make a lot of difference when you get out there Monday morning. When I worked in London, I told the story of Jeremiah Lamphia and the prayer meeting in New York to our lunchtime congregations. And I asked them if they wanted that for London, and I could see people nodding. They wanted it. Many of them told me afterwards, that's what they wanted, revival in London. So I started a prayer meeting, like Jeremiah Lamphia. And over the next three years, we never had more than seven people at that prayer meeting how much do you want it? Are you happy with the house of the Lord in ruins? Are you being stirred to action? You see, we should be. As the Lord himself takes his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit makes it burn deep into our hearts, we should be roused, awoken, disturbed, perhaps. Has that been our experience this evening? Well, if it has, then like these people, we'll be committed during this year to building the house of the Lord. And it's down to him to do it. But it's down to us to obey. Let's pray together.